Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and today's podcast is with Andy Evans. Andy is a former RAF Buccaneer navigator, but he also did an exchange with the US Navy flying the A6 and Truman. This podcast mainly focuses on this time on the A6, including flying from a carrier, training, and some memorable stories. So if you like what we do here, visit us at patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview and donate and help us to keep going. Also, visit us at aircrewinterview.tv for more interviews and exclusive content. Thank you and enjoy. Hi, my name is uh, Andy Evans and... uh... I was uh, in the Royal Air Force and uh, the U.S. Navy and Fleet Air Arm, a real mixture between uh, 1967 and 1984. And in that time, I flew in the Buccaneer primarily and also in the U.S. Navy, the A6 Intruder. So, Andy, when did you uh, first uh, become interested in aviation? (laughs) Very good question there. Uh, The reality is I didn't. Um, That doesn't mean I don't enjoy it now, but um, I was pulled out of school at the age of 16. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, folks didn't have too much cash, and uh, the bottom line is I had to help pay the mortgage. Mm -hmm. And I was working in shifts at Cortals in Coventry, and after three years of doing that one night shift, I looked at the Sunday Times, and lo and behold, there was an advert for... Uh, joining the Royal Air Force as pilot, navigator, or AEO officer. And to be quite honest, I thought it's time I travelled a bit, <laughs> and uh, I applied to be a navigator, which I know was unusual. Most guys would have applied to be a pilot, but I, I really wanted to travel, and I thought, well, I've got a better chance of a job if I'm a navigator. And <laughs> lo and behold, that worked out. So, what year did you join the RAF? Uh, it was November 65 when I started my, uh, my training down at South Cerny, obviously about a couple of months before that. Uh, I think we did a, a week or so at Biggin Hill for selection processes, and then, as I said, I started the basic training in November of 65. So, could you tell us a bit about your basic uh, training and what did you fly? Um, okay, it took place at two bases. Uh, the first one was RF Gaiden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there they had Valettas and Varsities. Um, they both, you know, there was a twin-engine prop aircraft. Uh, uh, the bottom line is they could take a couple of navigators, and we had an instructor standing behind us, and uh, he gave, he pointed us in the right direction when we went offline, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we, I went on to RAF Stratical, and there I flew the Domini, which is um, a twin jet these days. It's probably outdated, but. It's, it would today it would probably be called a uh, an executive jet. Mm-hmm. Um, the training most aircraft in the RF in those days used Astro, so most of our training revolved around the use of Astro. Mm-hmm. Of course, that wasn't much use in a Buccaneer or an A6, but uh, <laughs> in fact, the only time I ever used Astro in anger was uh, in Oman 22 years later when I tried to cross the empty corner. Wow. Um, when I left the Air Force, I went to join the Sultan's Armed Forces and uh, for five and a half years as a brigade air support officer. And as I said, that's the, literally the only time I actually used Astro. Yeah. But it worked. So after your basic flying training, where did you get posted? 
Um, when I finished uh, at Stratashall, I was actually given a choice, which is unusual, I know. Uh, but I was given a choice um, of going to Germany on cameras, staying in the Royal Air Force, or uh, joining the fleet air arm on Buccaneers. Now, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't even know what a Buccaneer looked like. I had to go to Jane's uh, book of <laughs> aircraft. And it had a pointy nose compared with the cameras, so we opted for that. Yes. The bottom line is the fleet arm was short of guys for the back seat. So what was your training like on the Buccaneer like? Um, to be quite honest, it was actually a lot better suited uh, to the role of fast jet than the RAF uh, navigator training was. And that's not a criticism. As I said, they didn't have anything similar to the Buccaneer. Every aircraft, including the, the RAF, had, including the uh, Canberra, had yeah. an Astrodome. So, But uh, first of all, I went up to RAF Lossy Mouth and because I'd spent little time on uh, radar work. They gave me 30 hours in a sea venom, which mm-hmm. was side by side, and uh, basically I was staring at an interceptoscope, mm-hmm. you know, looking at radar, and uh, they also had some time in, the, in um, I can't remember which model it was, but a small twin-engine aircraft where an instructor was standing behind you. Mm-hmm. After that, uh, I moved on to the Buccaneer OCU, mm-hmm. Uh, which is also a lossy mouth, and um, I did 120 hours flying in Mark One and Mark Two Buccaneers, doing different jobs. Uh, could you briefly explain your role as a navigator? In the Buccaneer, yes. Um, obviously, the uh, Navy's job, and indeed one of 12 squadrons, uh, squadrons' job was uh, one of the RAF Buccaneer squadrons' job was uh, anti-shipping. So, obviously, the role was finding the ships on the radar, and and uh, that way the pilot could find them and, and attack them. The uh, later on in the Buccaneer world, we we had Martel mm-hmm. and Pace Spike. Martel was a TV missile, and that was operated from the back seat. Yeah, you uh, found the ship, missile was fired, and the, the the navigator on the back basically had to have a death wish, but uh, you flew that <laughs> missile into the target. Uh, pay spike, likewise, there was a TV in the back, and um, uh, we tossed the bomb, mm-hmm. and uh, the pod on the wing of the aircraft was used to track the target while the man- aircraft maneuvered away from the target, and um, hopefully the, the bomb sort of, which was thrown from about four and a half to five miles, hopefully that would end up hitting the target that you lazed. Mm-hmm. Usually it did. So, can you tell us what squadrons you were based with at the moment uh, when you were on the Buccaneer? Um, first squadron, after going through training, uh, the first squadron was a, a Fleet Arm squadron. It was 809 squadron. Mm-hmm. Um, I joined them, uh, almost immediately went on cruising and did seven months at uh, uh, sea with them and then after after that, uh, I finished my time, and there's a bit more time spent on 809 squadron at Lossy Mouth. Mm-hmm. I went, then went on to back of the RAF on 12 squadron Buccaneers, 237 OCU as an instructor. And after I'd been in the States, I came back uh, on 216 squadron Buccaneers. Mm-hmm. So you also did an exchange with the Royal Navy. Could you tell us a bit about this? Yes. Um, 809 squadron, naval squadron. 
as I said, um, I uh, joined them basically out at sea. Mm-hmm. Um, they were just working out for sea. I joined them, uh, and then as a, we went round the Cape. Um, the time was such that I don't think Hermes, even Hermes itself, could have got through the uh, Suez Canal. Mm-hmm. But it was also blocked after the uh, the uh, Arab-Israeli war that had happened about the year before. Mm-hmm. But uh, went round the Cape, and we were our job was to cover the uh, the withdrawal from Aden, mm-hmm. and so we. We hovered around off Aden for quite a while and did a couple of R&R trips into Mombasa. Mm-hmm. And then eventually when that job was over, we went back around the Cape and back wow. to uh, to the UK. As I said, it's a trip about seven months. Wow. So did the training differ to the RAF? Um, yes and no. The First of all, the buccaneers that went when they were moved to the RAF, they had, uh, I believe, one uh, over anti-shipping squadron, which was 12 squadron, and the other two squadrons were in Germany and they were overland. Now, the training and the work we did on 809 squadron was very similar to that mm-hmm. on 12 squadron, but very different to 15 and 16 squadron, which were overland squadrons in Germany. Mm-hmm. So, but, was the role different with the Navy rather than uh, to the RAF? Um, it was the same in the Navy and mm-hmm. shipping and a bit of overland work as 12 squadron, mm-hmm. but different to 15 and 16 squadron, both of which were based in Germany and they were basically all overland. Right. So a lot of us probably want to know is what was it like taking off and landing on a carrier? Um, <laughs> quite amazing. <laughs> Certainly on Hermes. Uh, Hermes was a very small carrier. Even after the upgrade it had before I went on board it, it was only 28,000 tonne. To put things into perspective, that was less than a third of the size of an American carrier. Wow. Um, And it was designed to fly small aircraft like Sea Venoms. Mm -hmm. Um, The Buccaneer was a heavy machine. I think. I'll have to forgive me if I get my numbers wrong. It's a long time ago. But 32,000 pounds, all that weight, dry. It was a big beast. And by the time you put puts, uh, even a minimal load of fuel and weapons on, you're launching it around about, oh, 48,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. Now, the, um, the bow cat catapult on the Hermes, I believe, is 140 feet. Mm-hmm. So you have to accelerate in 140 feet, which is not very far. Mm-hmm. You have to accelerate up to uh, flying speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, off Aden, that was a bit of a gotcha mm-hmm. uh, because there was no wind to help the age of the, the speed of the ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was always a little bit of uh, sink off the deck. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the reality was that, the, you know, you blacked out a little bit, and that may be an exaggeration, but mm-hmm. you certainly weren't that compass mentors. You couldn't hold your head forward on the cat shot. No, uh, no. The, the landing, uh, again on Hermes because of the weight of the aircraft, we only operated with two wires. Mm-hmm. That was one and wire and number three. The target wire on board ship is generally the third wire. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is, the reason they had to take wires two and four out is if we'd hooked number four wire, the weight of the aircraft would have put the bow 
or the nose wheel over the bow of the ship. So it was a pretty tight operation. The pilots had to work at it. Yeah, I can imagine. So what was life on board like? Was it comfortable? Yes. Yes, it was. Uh, the first thing that always struck me was the noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, admittedly, we, you know, I was fairly used to an airfield, but there is the noise on a carrier is immense. Mm-hmm. There's always noise from aircraft. Catapults make a lot of noise. And being the junior guy in the squadron, I actually had a berth underneath the bowcat. Quite literally, the metal housing of the bowcat. Oh, if God. I sat up in my top bunk, I would hit my head on it. <laughs> now, the, the bottom line was that I would. Um, I wouldn't. I couldn't sleep for the first four or five days because of the uh, the noise. But yeah. funny old thing, you got used to that. Uh, and when I went, <laughs> when I finished my cruise and I went back uh, to my folks' place and slept there, I couldn't sleep there. It was too quiet. But the first <laughs> thing, the first thing is noise. That's the big thing that'll get you. Yeah. Uh, that's the most impressive thing of the lot. The uh, the air conditioning on the ship worked. It was actually pretty good compared with most British carriers at the time. And um, it was always known as Happy Hermes. In other words, the accommodation was pretty good. Food was always good. Never a problem there. So how many times a week would you actually fly? Four or five days a week, maybe more. Mm, that's, that's, Funnily, that's I'll take the most hours I ever got in one year was my year on uh, my first year flying which was 809 squadron of the navy and hermes i picked up 360 hours which in reality uh it's about 250 trips because most of our flights are only an hour 15 and hour 20. yeah so do you have any memorable stories from your royal navy days well yes funny old thing um the the most memorable thing was my arrival on board ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd done some time working up with 809 Squadron based at Lossiemouth, and then the whole squadron flew down to join Hermes in Lime Bay. Mm-hmm. I was literally one of only two or three people who had never been to the, to the ship before. I'd never seen a carrier. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I flew down with uh, the pilot who knew what he was doing, and uh, we landed on and Boy, I climbed out of that aircraft and I felt great. <laughs> you know, this, all of a sudden I joined the uh, the big boys. This is fabulous. Yeah. And every flight in the Navy, you were given a free egg and bacon sandwich and a cup of coffee. Not bad. Which I thought was fantastic. So we, I went down to the air crew uh, buffet along with the, the rest of the crews that just landed on, had my egg and bacon sandwich, and a pipe comes up <laughs> over the ship's tannoy system says, uh, all crews report to the... Uh, Aircrew briefing room, or the mm-hmm. ready room as it's known in the U.S. forces. I went there and found, to my amazement, I was the lead navigator on a four ship of Buccaneers, flying with somebody I'd never flown before, but he had never flown a Buccaneer to the deck. He was actually no. an experienced <laughs> lieutenant commander, but he'd only ever flown gannets, uh, right. propeller-driven aircraft to yeah. the deck. So all of a sudden, I find I was in the backseat of his aircraft, and uh, we had an escort of two vixens, and we were due to we were going off to attack a uh, prax attack on a Royal Naval frigate off the Isles of Scilly, mm-hmm. and uh, we uh, we had another couple of vixens attacking us or bouncing, as it was called, and uh, 
Well, the cloud base was horrendous, about 500 foot of cloud cloud base. The uh, the ship was rolling around in the in Lime Bay, which is not the kindest uh, part mm-hmm. of the, uh, the English Channel. And uh, well, anyway, we taxied out. And on Hermes, we had things called self-centering gear, which mm-hmm. is on on the catapults. If you hit the catapult, and that's the wrong term to use, but if you arrived at the catapult off center, the wheels were rotating to direct the nose wheel into the center. So if you hit left or right, it would line the nose wheel up for you automatically. Mm -hmm. Well, the ship rolled at the wrong time. The the deck was wet with water. And uh, we hit this self-centered grid pretty hard, and it threw us off hard against the uh, catwalk, which is the... um, walkway around the carrier mm-hmm. and uh, all we could see from the deck was from the aircraft was green water green and white water uh-huh. obviously uh, we opened the canopy started to climb out and and a very large chief running the show on the deck climbs up to this uh, on next to me in the aircraft the engine was still running but it climbed on the wing and come around shoved me down back into the seat and yelled at the pilot likewise get back into the seat <laughs> you're launching and we said what he said well no sorry you're going sir because the deck is locked on a small carrier if an aircraft and we were the first guys to taxi out if you block the deck nobody else can launch mm-hmm. um so they didn't risk so we you know put the uh, pull the seat pins back out again Canopy was closed, and neither of us were very happy about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and using a tractor, they maneuvered us onto the um, the catapult. They weren't going to risk us uh, running at it again in this rolling deck. And um, we were duly launched off. Well, that was my first cat shot, mm-hmm. and I I was absolutely staggered how shot how hard it was. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, we, we eventually joined up with the uh, the other three buccaneers and our two vixen escort. As I said, it's a 500-foot cloud base. Could probably see about a couple of miles. It really wasn't that great weather. And from that little experience, we're a little bit shell-shocked, to say the least. And we went off and duly attacked uh, this frigate. Who maybe have been Bishop's Rock Lighthouse, for all I knew. Everything was on radar. You couldn't see a thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we headed back after the, the strikes. The Vixens, in the meantime, but done their thing, they'd had fun and were fighting probably way above the cloud that the Buccaneers were at. And uh, we went back to the ship, found the ship, which I just thought was uh, quite amazing. Uh, it obviously moved around a bit. Mm-hmm. And um, we went round and tried to land on. Unfortunately, we bolted once and were waved off twice. The other, All the other aircraft got back on. And this is not a criticism of the pilot. Mm-hmm. He you know, he'd just not done this yeah. before uh, in a jet. Yeah. And um, we have diverted into Yeovilton mm-hmm. in our green suits. I remember going into the Yeovilton wardroom and asking the commander if we could possibly have a beer <laughs> or three. We needed something to uh, calm the nerves. And, I um, can imagine. I was, on my sec- I was on my second. He said, yes, you can go around the corner there. They had a ladies' night on. Go around the corner there, guys. And Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so we, we, <laughs> I was on my second beer, and there's this voice behind me. 
I said, Andy, put the beer down. What? I turned around. It was one of the more experienced pilots from the ship, from the squadron on board. He had been flown in, in the backseat of another buccaneer, to pick up the aircraft and me. Um, and by then, I thought, no, there's no way. I'm not going back to that ship. <laughs> and he, he twisted my arm. He said, come on, get in the back. By then, it was dark, of course. So we launched from the Overton, which is absolutely no problem, and arrival back on uh, Hermes, be it at night, on a very small deck. Mm-hmm. was actually a problem because he'd done it many times before. But yes. that was my first 12 hours on a British carrier. And I must admit, I was a bit nonplussed about the first 11 of them. <laughs> <laughs> wow, uh, a very dramatic uh, entry, I suppose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Andy, overall, did you enjoy your time with the Navy? I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I remember going back to my decision to join the the forces and I really you know I wasn't doing it because of my love of aircraft although at this time obviously mm-hmm. yeah I'd found it but they were exciting and fun and, uh, but uh, what I did get out of my time with the Navy was travel. I mean I traveled around a lot more of the, saw a lot more of the world I'd ever seen in my life at that point. I think I'd done one trip to Guernsey in my youth, and that was my total of my overseas travel until I joined the Royal Navy. I think that's right. But the bottom line is, yeah. yeah, I thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed my time. I thoroughly enjoyed the the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, once, um, when we came, eight and nine squadron came back from sea, uh, we we were told that we had to display at Farnborough. Uh, for the 1967 Farnborough display. Oh, okay. And uh, and uh, we put up five buccaneers along with six vixens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we went. We flew down to Yolton, which is where we operated out for a couple of weeks, and did 11 aircraft flying displays over Farnborough and also practicing at Yolton. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, after. A, Cup fly past 11 aircraft, they slipped into a foursome and a f- correction, a fivesome and a sixsome of mm-hmm. fixings. Um, not very demanding from a, a navigator's point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were just ballast in the back. <laughs> uh, the highlight of that, though, was in one part of a display, uh, I was in three position, which in, in Navy ways, Navy terms, is on the starboard side of a close formation and we slipped in and hit number four mm-hmm. who was in the box formation. We hadn't even realized we'd done it wow. until uh, number four yelled up and said, break off. You, you hit, you've had a midair. Well, we were lucky. And the Buccaneer, just outside of the aileron, you've got about 18 inches of wing mm-hmm. that doesn't do In other words, we had just touched our wing against the inside of the wing of number four mm-hmm. and the wing was looked around the wing was sticking up 90 degrees the only problem was we were told about this as we're inverted in a barrel roll in close formation <laughs> <of the open. laughs> I did. To say, everybody it was supposed to be a, a quite an, a, an interesting uh, departure from the formation but everybody split up because everybody but us, us had seen it happen yeah the leader, of course. Uh, and uh, 
anyway, that was the highlight of my ballast flying, because that's all we did. That's all we were doing at the back seat during that yeah. month or so of that, that work. Um, of the, uh, that's my highlight of the memory of the 1967 Farmer. Certainly very cool, Andy. Very, very cool. <laughs> yes. Um, after I'd finished on 809 Squadron, which I think was about 1970, I went to back to the Royal Air Force. The Air Force had mm -hmm. uh, actually purchased the Buccaneer at that time. They'd mm -hmm. never planned to buy it before, but their TSR-2 F-111 ideas had fallen apart, and they needed a stopgap solution. So they'd bought, I'm guessing, 100 or so Buccaneer 2s. Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, I uh, went back to the first squadron that was formed, 12 squadron. Uh, by then, of course, I was regarded as an experienced navigator on the Buccaneers. Yeah. Because, uh, I'd done a, a tour with the uh, the Navy before on the same aircraft. And uh, I did three years on 12 squadron. Very mm -hmm. similar job to that, that 809, the naval squadron, did. Mm -hmm. uh, following that tour... Uh, I um, was sent to the 237 OCU, which is at RAF Huntington, as an instructor navigator and uh, warfare instructor, qualified warfare instructor mm -hmm. on the Buccaneer. Um, I was there from 72 to 75 as an instructor, and uh, then I got sent on another exchange post, I began to worry at this point that the RAF really didn't want me hanging around, but I was sent on another <laughs> exchange to the US Navy. Yeah, so obviously in 1975, something amazing happened. Could you tell us about this? Yes, uh, the amazing thing was I got what I asked for. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in those days, and I don't know if you actually, they actually do it today in the Royal Air Force, but in those days, you had a three to five years, you had a meeting down with the appointers down in MOD and told them, they told you what your reports have been like and what your possibility or future was like. Mm -hmm. And one, at the end, they'd always ask you, well, where would you like to go next? Mm -hmm. And there was one slot available uh, for a Buccaneer navigator mm -hmm. in with the US Navy. There were wow. no pilot postings over there, just a for the Royal Air Force anyway, just one navigator slot over there on exchange, and I, they didn't even know it existed. <laughs> and I, I, said to, so I said to them, this is what I want to do, and if you need to know more about it, please contact so-and-so. In other words, I knew the guy was already on it. Yeah. And um, lo and behold, a month later, much to my amazement, I found I was being posted to uh, the U.S. Navy at Naval Air Station, Whidbey Island. Wow. So, like, why was it just one posting? I mean, was that any, was there any reason for that, behind that? Um, well, I'm only going to make a guess at that. Uh -huh. uh, there were so many exchanges in the British forces, mm -hmm. RAF or Navy or Army or whatever it was. Uh, I believe, well, anyway, the bottom line is, the exchanges were balanced. In other words, there were 50, uh, I'm going to say 50, I don't know, mm -hmm. say 20 U.S. officers working in the U.K. forces, and therefore we had to send them 20 British officers to work in the U.S. forces. Course, yeah. very, valid ex very valid experience. Mm -hmm. But that's purely, in other words, it was a, I'm 
guess it was a NATO exchange program. I really don't know, but uh, that's how it worked. And one came up, and I heard about it, and asked them if they'd send me there, and lo and behold, they did. Very lucky man, I suppose. <laughs> yes, I was. So, when did your training begin, and where were you actually based? In the U.S. The US Navy, um, I was based in Washington State. Okay. Uh, at a place called Whidbey Island, which is an island mm-hmm. off the northwest coast of America, not far from Vancouver Island or Vancouver itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's where the A6 intruders were based. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, the carriers were spread all over the west coast, uh, some operated out of San Francisco, some operated out of San Diego. And these days, some actually operate out of Puget Sound. Mm-hmm. But whenever we went to sea, we'd fly down to our carrier was um, Kidio, Kidio mm-hmm. USS Kidio. And that was operated out of San Diego. So we'd fly down there for a couple of days and then fly out to the ship. But mm-hmm. that's... Um, my, my posting was actually... As an instructor, instructor on A6 okay. in the U.S. Navy, I had done, uh, as soon as I arrived at Whidbey Island, they gave me a short two-month refresher course, as they called it, on the A6, which was fine. I mean, I familiar with aircraft at that point. I knew the front from the back and mm-hmm. whatever. And um, <laughs> I then operated as an instructor on VA-128, which is the same as our OCUs. Okay. Uh, they they took pilots and navigators and trained them on that particular aircraft. Um, I my job was actually all the time supposed to be as an instructor at Whidbey Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, much to the chagrin of my wife, I uh, I applied to be sent to sea and join another squadron. And mm-hmm. after a little bit of negotiation between uh, the American embassy, or the British embassy in Washington, D.C. and uh, the U.S. Navy, I was allowed to join VA-52, which is a attack squadron 52 flying A-6s, and they were based on uh, USS Kitty Hawk. So what I did, I believe I'm only one. I'm certainly the only RAF guy to have done it. I hear that there was one U.S. Naval officer that mm-hmm. managed to get a cruise on board a carry on the East Coast, but I really don't know that. Oh, it's very special then. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that. I thought it was uh, more commonplace for the Navy, as you say, like rather than the RAF. Um, the one I went on was the only, you're right, was the only RAF exchange that I'm aware of to the US Navy. And I don't know how that came about, because we had... Royal Naval Exchange officers with the U.S. Navy on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. In fact, guys I'd flown with in the U.S. in the Royal Navy were there. Well, I say guys, one guy. One guy. You know, um, yeah, it, you know, there were only two of us at the time: Briggs yeah. and the American, the U.S. Navy at the time. Um, but yeah, that's a very good observation, Mike. I. Mm-hmm. One would have thought it would be Navy to Navy and Air Force to Air Force, but mm-hmm. I landed a, I went from Royal Air Force to uh, U.S. Navy. I, I suspect a lot of that had to do with the fact that my first tour was with the fleet air on. Yeah. The Royal um, Navy. 
So, Andy, what was the f- the first time you saw one? What was it like? What did you did you like the aircraft? Um, a little bit uglier on first <laughs> looks than a Buccaneer, and an A six guy would probably cram me for that. But the reality <laughs> is, it it was a funny looking beast, very stumpy compared with the uh, um, the Buccaneer. But yeah, you, it was a side by side seating position compared with the Buccaneer way uh, behind the pilot. Mm-hmm. This one, you're side by side. Uh, and I found my view was phenomenal. The view on the Buccaneer was very good too because mm-hmm. you were higher than the pilot slightly offset. Mm-hmm. So the view from both aircraft was good, but the A6 was excellent. They, the bottom line is you had canopy all the way down to your knees. Yeah. You, you know, you really were in a very uh, good position to seeing what was going on. Um, the... The aircraft was different to the Buccaneer in that it was slower. Mm-hmm. It didn't have the power of the Buccaneer. Mm-hmm. However, it had a wing which made it very maneuverable. Yeah. Uh, it was When we were at sea, it was the only aircraft on board ship that had a chance of uh, doing 1B1s with the F-14s we had on board. No, um, really? Yeah, it was a very maneuverable aircraft. Um, the AVL avionics of course were way beyond the buccaneers avionics i mean they yeah. they were phenomenal mm-hmm. they uh, they were absolutely superb um the, the reality is i loved the a6 uh and i hate to say this because i'll be crowned and crucified next time i go to <laughs> the buccaneer reunion but i actually prefer flying it compared with the buccaneer that's a bold statement. <laughs> I know. It'll probably cost me a few beers next time I come into London. <laughs> Most likely, yes. But it was also, apparently it was built like a tank. Is that true? Yes. Hmm. It really was. Because it had gone through uh, the Vietnam era, mm-hmm. they, it, for instance, it had... Oh, boy, I've got to be careful here. It had three different sorts of... Hydraulics mm-hmm. for the flying controls. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, they found that in the Buccaneer, if you lost, for instance, you had a, a shell hit or a shrapnel hit the flying control lines, uh, hydraulic line, that was it. It wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. Well, the A6, because it had been built and rebuilt and updated based on the experience of Vietnam, which was where it was used significantly at night. Yeah. The, the uh, yeah, okay, uh, the A6 itself, uh, really, because of its avionics, really was used at night. I mean, the Buccaneer, we flew at night purely enough for the pilots to get their, you know, monthly requirements in for night flying. Mm-hmm. But the Buccaneer um, had a limited capability at night. Mm-hmm. The A6 was built to operate at night, and it really did that job superbly well. Which meant, for most of the time, the Buccaneer in the A6, you operated as singleton interdictor. Yeah, we did formation attacks, but the real role was nighttime interdiction as a pair, as a, as a singleton or a pair. Yeah. So, could you tell us a bit, a bit in detail, I suppose, about the training um, and the sim, if possible? Yes, the. Um, the A6, uh, 
the avionics very different to the Buccaneer, very complicated. They mm-hmm. were amazing, as I've already said a few times. But to train you on that, they had a thing called Grumman TC-40, and mm-hmm. I don't know what the civilian term is, but it it had two sets of avion uh, of radar and whatever in that aircraft, and mm-hmm. you had you could, therefore you could have a an A6 instructor standing behind you uh, and making sure the the makey learny uh, uh, A6 bombardier navigators, and that's what we were called over the BNs, mm-hmm. uh, could operate the equipment. Um, the uh, uh, the was both Buccaneer and A6 had simulators, but by today's standards, they're pretty basic. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real training was in in the A6 was in the TC40, where mm-hmm. you had all the uh, nav equipment, uh, and of course. To be, to be quite honest, I mean, if you had a, a problem when you were flying in the A6, pilots uh, could look across and, you know, sort of, hey, no, that's what you do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Interesting on the A6, um, you didn't have uh, weapons checklists as we have them oh, okay. in the Royal Air Force. Their basic computers would tell you if you did something wrong. They'd tell you quite pointedly with flashing orange lights and red oh, lights okay. if you made the wrong switches and things. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's common today, but we, we didn't have checklists in the A6 as we had in the Buccaneer. Sounds like the A6 was a bit of uh, you know ahead of the Buccaneer in, that t- in them terms. Way ahead. Yeah. When I left, they had a number of... I, Iterations of the A6 while I was there. I did a couple of trips on the A6A. The airframe didn't change mm-hmm. much, but the avionics, what the BN sat in front of, that changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the A6A, which was the prime A6 used in Vietnam, that was upgraded to the E, then the Canes, and then the Tram. And those are abbreviations, but what the A6E and the Canes, they they had the canes as carrier inertial systems, short for. Mm. Um, you didn't, these are days, the days before sat navs and whatever. Yeah. But on a rolling deck of a carrier, that inertial system from you climbing in would align within two or three minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could be launched. This aircraft knew where you were, even without, you know, GPS or anything like that. Um, the A6A would sometimes take 15 minutes. So those, those are big differences. Of course. Uh, we moved on to the tram. At the end of my period with the U.S. Navy, and I didn't have, only had one trip in this thing before I left. Um, the tram had a dome on the front. It, it had not just had radar, but it had a FLIR, forward-looking mm-hmm. infrared. All the radars in the A6, to show you how good the inertial systems were, Mm-hmm. It would pick up a moving target on the ground doing more than four knots over the ground. In other words, wow. you're rolling down your driveway, it would see you. It would cut out the driveway and cut out the garage, but it would see that movement. Mm-hmm. And to put things in perspective, uh, the F-14's inertial system would only pick up an aircraft doing 40 knots different speed to itself. Wow, okay. Or different. Um, an f 4 
would only pick up an aircraft because they were both radars that had AMTI capabilities. They would only pick up something that did 140 knots mm-hmm. speed difference itself. The A6 picked up something doing four knots. So, yeah, a typical training sortie uh, would be you'd go into, from Whitby Island, you'd flew a low level at night over through the Cascades. The pilot, incidentally, from the, uh, the radar system, had something similar to a 3D screen. He, mm-hmm. didn't, he had a head-up display, but in front of him was a 3D screen that would give, give based on the distance from the air, would give different shades mm-hmm. and shapes of the terrain. So he could fly um, in a very good feel for where the hills were and the, the valleys were. And I'm talking this, the mid-70s. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, he could fly, you know, we'd give him steering and he could fly the steering, but he could see from my radar screen the 3D image of the land out, out ahead of him. Mm-hmm. Likewise, uh, we would practice against a moving target at Boardman Range in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And at night, uh, this was a really a an old Volkswagen, mm-hmm. Volkswagen Beetle. And um, this... Uh, uh, I would pick that thing up on my radar scope at 15 miles. In other wow. words, I could see this thing moving along at 10 miles an hour, wow. 15 miles away. I could lock onto it, and about eight miles in on the FLIR scope, I could see how long that engine had been running. I could see the number of people in it. Not that there ever were, of course. Mm-hmm. It was a bombing target. And... Um, you know, we'd pick a bomb, let the automatics run the system. You didn't, you didn't do manual bombing in something like the A6. Mm-hmm. Uh, the system was far more accurate than that. And we'd, you'd, hit a, you'd put a bomb down, if not on the target, within feet every time. So much so, when the tone went out from the, uh, the A6, the bomb had gone, mm-hmm. the range control officer would move that, turn the this target, Volkswagen, 90 degrees, so you wouldn't destroy his target every time. Mm-hmm. And of course, later on, with uh, if you were doing it for real, uh, through the FLIR system, you had a, the pave spike system. Uh, and in other words, you could laze the target, uh, pickle a, an LGB, and that would guarantee it. And that is the mid to late 70s. Just imagine what they could do now. We couldn't miss a... We could not miss the target at night in the mid to late 70s in the tram. I mean, that is very impressive. Uh, I never yeah, realised the capabilities of the A6. So, Andy, could you tell us about your first trip in the A6? Um, I suppose, really, I suppose the thing that really comes to mind is the difference in thinking about operating an aircraft. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this has nothing to do with, uh, you know, what I looked after in the right seat. It was to do with the general operation of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, this is a minor thing, but in the Royal Air Force, Buccaneers, you know, you get on the runway and the pilot very slowly upped the, the power of the engines. Mm-hmm. In other words, he didn't slam the throttles open. Um, basically to save the life of the engine. 
the teaching in the in the U.S. Navy was very different. They wanted the pilot to slam those two engines open because mm -hmm. if it was going to fail, they wanted it to happen on the runway and not when they were, it was airborne. Yeah. Just minor things. You know, I know there are a number of different um, uh, differences in um, thinking. Mm -hmm. Other than that, but that was, I remember on the first trip, I remember saying to the pilot, I got Airborne, I said, hey, don't you guys, be a little, aren't you guys a little more gentle with the engines on takeoff? He said, no, that's what we're told to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, could you actually tell us a bit about the cockpit and sitting, you know, side by side, and what was that like? Um, it was... It was very good in that my view was excellent out to the front and to the right. My view to the left was not great. But mm -hmm. unlike the Buccaneer, a lot of the work, well, most of the work was done using the systems. In other words, visual map reading, yes, of course we did that. And in combat, we're both guys were looking all the time for, I say combat, practice combat. Mm -hmm. Most guys were looking all the time for other aircraft in the vicinity, uh, but I could see from 12 o'clock round to around about 5 o'clock, mm -hmm. okay, the pilot could see from 12 through to 7, and we had some pretty decent uh, uh, radar warning systems mm -hmm. that could basically look out behind us. Um, the, um, yeah, it was, the views are very good, the, the layout of the cockpit, Many of the autopilot controls and a number of other things were actually in the center mm -hmm. console between the pilot and navigator. And that was actually very useful. Mm -hmm. That was very, very useful indeed. Um, the, uh, I, in the, you know, I would have a, the radar scope and all the inertial systems. And with the tram time, I, uh, with the tram, they would put the FLIR scope in above the radar scope and that could control the the uh, face back system. Um, pilot side, he, he did have a head-up display for steering, but mm -hmm. most of his stuff was done on a large square TV screen uh, in the place of the artificial horizon in the UK. And as I said, we, from the radar, we'd feed a 3D image to his screen. Um, you could at a push, fly the A6 from the right seat. Okay. Uh, it was it was actually done for the heck of it. Uh -huh. It's not something you'd land on board ship or even on a runway. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the guys I was on board ship with on my squadron received the Navy Cross, which is the highest naval award mm -hmm. uh, the, the U.S. Navy offers uh, because... with Vietnam, and he managed to fly the aircraft back to the ship. Um, wow. And uh, so, yeah, you could fly the aircraft from the right seat, be it left-handed. Uh, the there was no A6 ever built with two sticks. Likewise, there was no Buccaneer built with two sticks. Yeah. So, you know, the pilot was, for the most part, when they first flew those both those aircraft, uh, the pilot was learning Admittedly, he had a guy in the right seat knew mm -hmm. what was going on. Usually, the first trips were with another pilot. Mm -hmm. uh, he had a guy that uh, would keep him 
out of trouble in the right seat. So what kind of uh, training sorties did you actually conduct in the year six? Um, <clears throat> occasionally it would be big uh, formations, mm-hmm. um, but that was rare. And you're talking 20 or 30 aircraft, A6s and A7s, escorted by F14s. That was actually pretty rare. It was done in training, but and I know it was done over Vietnam quite a bit, but with the up the A6 better used as a, a night interdictor, and that's really, you know, what we did. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of our work was at night. You launch with a carrier at night. You fly to a range at night. You know, um, tank at night, and then back to the carrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we would go as usually as singletons. Okay. Um, and. The A6 carried quite a warload. Uh, it was lighter dry weight than the Buccaneer. It was 28,000 pound dry. Mm-hmm. Um, but we could launch with 28, 500 pound bombs on it. That's um, impressive. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, all on the wings. There was no Bombay on the A6. It was all on the wings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, re- the difference between the big difference between the A6 and the Buccaneer was the Buccaneer didn't really have a wing. It had it was designed to be comfortable at high speed, low level, and indeed it was. Mm-hmm. Tremendous aircraft to get it up to 540 knots at very low level, and there was no turbulence. Yeah. The A6, you could wind it up to a similar speed, but it had a, a wing that actually worked as a wing. Uh, and you, at ultra high speed at the low level in the A6, he was actually quite uncomfortable. So that's a big difference in the airframes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the A6, because of its wing, could carry a very significant, in other words, you've got a lot of lift. Mm-hmm. Uh, you carry a very significant ball load. The Marines, they operated the A6, they carried 3,500 pound bombs mm-hmm. because the US Marines said, oh, we can carry another two 500 pound bombs. <laughs> if we take the undercarriage doors off, and that's what they did. Oh, okay. The US Navy said, no, we're not doing that. We're limited to 28 500-pound bombs. <laughs> wow. So, I think a lot of people want to know is, what was it like operating from a US carrier deck uh, compared to the Royal Navy? Um, very noisy. You had 80 to 100 aircraft, and it was... A carrier deck is a very noisy, very dangerous place if you don't know where you are and what you're doing. Yes. Um, and I'm talking both Royal Navy and U.S. Navy. Mm-hmm. Um, the We would, um, operations from the, the U.S. carrier compared with the Royal Navy, the Royal Navy cat shot was very significant, which I already mentioned. You, mm-hmm. It really was a kick in the backside. Likewise, the landing, you used every inch of that carrier deck if yeah. you caught number three one. The US Navy, there the catapults were 200 foot, 250 foot plus. Uh, the A6, because of its wing again, also its minimum launch speed was about 20 miles an hour slower than the Buccaneer. Uh, So, the cat shot on on an A6 off an American carrier was, you could talk, 
Mm-hmm. You could hold your head away from the seat. You could not do that on a Buccaneer cat shot, mm-hmm. cat shot from Hermes. Yeah. Uh, so the cat shots from an American carrier in the A6 were a lot smoother. Mm-hmm. Likewise, the deck was an awful lot bigger. Now, this did not affect the guy in the right seat, of course, mm-hmm. other than he didn't bite his fingernails quite so much. <laughs> uh, but the deck was significantly bigger. Uh, and the uh, and you had four wires, say four chances talking talk a wire compared with Hermes. You, as I said, they took two and four wires out. You only actually had two chances of hooking a wire. Mm-hmm. They hoped you wouldn't catch, catch number one because that meant you were pretty close to the round down when you yeah. came over the deck. But it was a, the general operation of the ship, the air, of the aircraft of the ship. It was it was well within its limits compared with the Royal Navy. The Royal operating um, the Buccaneer off the Royal Naval Carrier, certainly Hermes. Even as a, a new guy, I knew, I felt, you know, you couldn't do much more. You couldn't launch a much heavier aircraft, if at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, like which man went on, they're heavier than the Buccaneer. Yeah, sure, typical day on board, you, you know. Um, in both, in all forces, when I was in Royal Navy, Royal Air Force, or U.S. Navy, uh, you all had secondary duties, looking mm-hmm. after a division of men. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the time was put aside for that. Then you go and brief for your flight, fly, come back, debrief. And, uh, you know, there's always food on in the, it doesn't matter which ship you're in, there's always a, they provide the, the sailors with, a, with food, that's for sure. <laughs> if you didn't do a lot of exercise, and they did actually, in the U.S. Navy, had pipe jogging stations. You couldn't run around the deck when operations were going on on the aircraft. So they mm-hmm. would allow those that wished to, to jog around the deck. And there were hundreds who would do it at a time yeah. during certain quiet times on the deck. But that is really a straightforward day. It's a, you know, and uh, you were just counting the days round to the next port call. Hmm. So did you ever work with the F-14s when you were with the A-6? Sorry, I missed that, Mike. That, oh. that broke up. Stop. So, did you ever work with the F-14s while on the uh, base with the A-6? Yes, very much so. The A-6, because it had a wing, was the only aircraft on our, on Kitty Hawk at the time, that was nearly as manoeuvrable as the F-14. The F-14 is a big aircraft. Yeah. It used to launch at 96,000 pounds all up weight. The A-6... We would launch it around about 54,000 pounds all that weight with mm-hmm. bombs and whatever. The F-14 was a very big aircraft, but mm-hmm. very maneuverable. Uh, the other aircraft we had, we had a couple of squadrons of A-7s, uh, a flight of Hustlers, uh, which are recce aircraft. And uh, none of those, the A-7s, they weren't maneuverable at all. Mm-hmm. And the A-6 was the only dissimilar aircraft to the F-14 mm-hmm. that we would do 1v1s against, you mm-hmm. know, that they enjoyed it, we enjoyed it, they, they were more, more maneuverable than us, and of course there is, uh, but the bottom line was um, we could hold our own. Mm-hmm. So, did you ever work with the RAF or Royal Navy while you were based with the US Navy? No, I didn't. 
Um, no, I don't don't ever recall working with the Royal Air Force or even USAF when I was with the uh, um, with the U.S. Navy. No. So completely separate entities at this time. Uh, yes, they were, and of course, geographically, we were different parts of the world too. <laughs> Very so, true. Um, Kitty Hawk headed off to the. Know, we were in the South Pacific, Japan, Korea, and Philippines, and wherever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our chance of mixing, meeting up with aircraft from those other forces was pretty slim. Mm-hmm. So, did you ever get a chance to work in combat or drive any, uh, drop any live ordnance? Combat, no. Vietnam had just finished mm-hmm. the year that I arrived there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, months beforehand. Literally, I think Vietnam finished in about May of 75. I arrived in November of 75. Mm-hmm. Um, live weapons, yeah, we use live weapons all the time. In fact, I'm not, I'm not sure how well this would go down with the uh, US Navy uh, <laughs> financiers, but <laughs> when we set, went to sea, there were lots of barges going, you know, the ship would sail from North Island, mm-hmm. hold off uh, San Diego for a bit while big barges of weapons were taken out and uploaded into the ship. Mm-hmm. Lots of 500-pound bar- Mark 8, you know, 500,000-pound bombs and even 2,000-pound bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot safer doing it that way than loading it up in a harbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, when we came back, now we used live ordnance mm-hmm. at least once a week yeah we would launch with live ordnance very regularly uh, they had plenty of it bottom line. <laughs> the, the impoverished British forces were always short of money so they, they didn't uh, they didn't have quite so much but to give you a feel for how uh, how often we launched with it when the ship came back to at the end of its cruise, came back to San Diego, and just before, with a day or two before we flew off back to Whitby Island, the ship had tied up alongside in San Diego. Rather than unload the the weapons, the, you know, the heavy weapons, uh, back onto these barges, it was actually cheaper and a lot more convenient for us to launch with 28 of them on each A6 and as many as the A7s could carry mm. and go and use them on splash targets and bombing ranges out mm-hmm. at sea. In other words, we would empty the ship of live ordnance, which made it sensibly so a lot safer. Yeah, of course. Taking the ship and yeah, and taking the barges back, you know, full of weapons back to the bases. So how did you actually fit in with the US Navy crews? Were you accepted? Very much so, yes. Uh, give you a feel. Um, uh, down here in Arizona, and here I am in my 70s, uh, for six months of the year, uh, I uh, play golf with guys on the same U.S. Navy squadron that I was on. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, they, you know, they, some of them live here permanently. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of them lives here permanently. Another three three or four of them come in for six months at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, the bottom line in Arizona, you've got some pretty good weather. 
Yeah, you do. Uh, and so, yes. And we, the, the stories have become embellished over the time, mm-hmm. but we all still laugh about them. But I, yeah, the reality is uh, I made a lot of friends uh, in my time in the U.S. Navy, and those friendships, yeah, I, I see those people all the time. Oh, that's brilliant, yeah. So, can you give us uh, some detail about the A6? Like, you know, speeds, ranges, if you can, for our viewers out there? Well, oh, I've, I don't think there's anything classified. I think the, the, the reality is, my memory might be a limiting factor here. Mm-hmm. The Buccaneer, as I've already said, was, a, was built for one thing, and that was to throw a nuclear weapon at a Sverdlov cruiser, which involved going at very high speed at low level. It was built to be very stable at low level. Both aircraft carried a similar amount of fuel. Mm -hmm. And on a high-level cruise, if you're transiting from one place to another, both aircraft had a range of about 1,500 miles. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both aircraft could operate around about, oh, crikey, um, 500 to 700 miles at low level. Mm -hmm. The Buccaneer traveled faster at low level because of its ability to travel at speed at low level in a Mm -hmm. comfortable fashion than the A6. But there were very similar ranges in transit, which is, you know, reality, an important part of what we did. And and both of them could in-flight refuel. And Mm -hmm. both aircraft double up as tankers, which was essential on board ship, of course. Yeah. Uh, in other words, we would have a we'd have a, a couple of aircraft rigged in the tanker role on board ship, both in the Buccaneer world and in the A6 world. Mm-hmm. So, could you tell us a bit about what squadrons you were based with? And I know you were based on land for a while and also sea, so if you could just briefly explain that, that would be great. Uh, do you mean both on the in the Buccaneer world and in the A6 world? Uh, A6 mainly. Okay, A6, very simple and straightforward. Um, it was VA-128, which is this, they called the RAG, replacement air group, same as our OCUs. In other words, it was a training squadron. Yeah. I did a short course there on the A6, and then I uh, became an instructor on the A6 there. Mm-hmm. Then I transferred to an attack squadron, which mm-hmm. was a front squadron based on USS Kitty Hawk. That was VA-52. So how many aircraft would be on the Kitty Hawk at this point? 80 to 100. Wow. Uh, we had one squadron of A6s, and I think that was 14 aircraft. We had two squadrons of A7s, a daylight attack aircraft, uh, probably another 28 Um you had flights of, well, you had a squadron of S-3s, which are anti-submarine. Yeah. Uh, very capable aircraft. You had a squadron of um, early warning aircraft. You had uh, a squadron of helicopters, uh, a squadron of... Um, Oh, yeah, recce, you know, recce aircraft, which was the, I believe, the Hustler, as they call it. It was an old bomber that wasn't that successful as a bomber, so 
that was um, you had four of those. But what? the total was about 80 to 100 aircraft. Was there, a, I think it's the A5 Vigilante, was that based on board at this time? You have got it right. It was Vigilante. I got fixed in my mind. Sorry, <laughs> that was the aircraft that did the recce run. Yes, my apologies. I, um, I got the two confused in my mind. Yes, it was the Vigilante that was using the recce roll on in the US Navy. That was a very big beast, wasn't it? <laughs> very much so. And uh, a very noisy one when it launched. Because, um, yeah, so how, yeah, like, I mean, this, um, I'm guessing you've been on deck and stuff when, you know, aircraft are taking off. It was like one that was louder than the other? Yes, Vigilante was the loudest. Vigilante. Closely yeah. followed by the F 14. Yeah. They launched an afterburner and they had jet blast deflectors, metal things that would come up behind the aircraft and uh, deflect the uh, jet blast. But if they weren't there, anybody on anything behind them would be blown off the back end of the ship. <laughs> That'd be very bad. So, how many people were actually on board on the Kitty Hawk? It had a crew of 5,000. Wow. Okay, that's a lot more than I was expecting. It was a, it was a city. It was a city. I can imagine, yeah. So, do you, uh, Andy, do you have any memorable stories uh, with the A6? I know it's hard to pinpoint, but uh, if you can maybe tell us one or two. Um, the, uh, Put you on the spot, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just thinking of... Um, well, yeah, they... I suppose, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, when I was in VA-128 as, uh, as a NAV instructor, uh, we had an inter-squadron A6 bombing competition. And that competition um, involved, it was all at night. Mm -hmm. Involved night work, um, taken off at night, night low level over um, over the Cascades, a night attack with a practice weapon mm -hmm. on a moving target in Oregon, and that was Boardman Range. Then a, uh, a radar control, not radar control, but a radar monitored night attack against a building, mm -hmm. a particular building in the middle of a city, like it was also Spokane, it was a city. Yeah. But they would choose. The radar was excellent. The A6. They would. Uh, you could pick out individual buildings. Then you'd come back. By then it was about 2 a.m. and the pilot would be assessed on his landings. You'd mm -hmm. do a practice dummy deck landing, and uh, the crew would be awarded based on the result. Be awarded uh, marks for that. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one I did with my pilot. Uh, we came first. And that was about four squadrons worth of A6. The second one, we mm -hmm. came second the following year. The, uh, that same year, uh, we did a bombing competition. Again, it was all night work against A7s down at Fallon. Mm -hmm. And myself, my pilot, came first in that one. In other words, yeah, there was, we had three lots of luck. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we did... Uh, we got ourselves a pretty good reputation, myself and my pilot. We, we, we did well. 
So, overall, did you enjoy your time with the U.S. Navy? Very much so. Yeah, it, it was the first time when I landed here in November in 75 was the first time I'd ever been to the USA. I did enjoy America. Mm-hmm. It's vast, of course, compared with the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you know, we, as I've already said, we're accepted very well. We got on very well with them. And when I returned to um, the UK and returned to the Royal Air Force, um, we decided, my wife, my wife and I decided there and then we would at some point try to emigrate to the USA, back mm-hmm. to the USA, which we succeeded in doing in 89. Uh, well, November of 88 was we actually received our papers to emigrate back and 89 was when we when I arrived back. That's well, certainly been one of my favorite. As I told you earlier, I live in Arizona, so it's one of the yeah. definitely one of the states I want to go back and visit. But um, overall, did you enjoy your time, fl- like flying over there? And how many hours did you get in terms of like the A six? A six, I picked up, I believe, six hundred and fifty hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I finished my time in the, the British forces. Uh, oh. I think with 3,800 hours. I jotted it down somewhere and I can't find my notes. Um, <laughs> but yes, uh, I think 3,800 yeah, 3, hours total made up of 650 in the A6 mm-hmm. and um, 2,800 in the Buccaneer. The rest was various training aircraft. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to pause there, Andy, for a second while I just let it roll for a sure. second. So what did you do after your exchange tour, if you could briefly explain that to us? Sure. Uh, I went back to the Royal Air Force uh, in mid-August of 1978. I became a flight commander on Buccaneers on a squadron that was just forming called 216 Squadron. That was based at Honington. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, at that period of time, shortly after forming that squadron, wings started falling off the Buccaneer. Buccaneer was built with a very rigid wing, and we lost, uh, I think, two aircraft, two crews in Germany. The wings just broke. So the Buccaneer was grounded for about a three- to six-month period, uh, in which time, during which time, all the squadrons were given a few two-seat hunters to sort of, so the pilots could keep their hand in and the navigators, uh, you know, would sort of uh, enjoy themselves in, so to speak, mm-hmm. low levels or whatever. Um, when the Buccaneer was cleared for flying in, they'd take quite a few Buccaneers out of service because they'd found cracks in the wings. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, 216 Squadron was merged with 12 Squadron yeah. Buccaneers. And so I became a flight commander on 12 Squadron based at Lossy Math, um, which I did another two years on. So I did another three years flying in the Buccaneer mm-hmm. once I returned back to UK, mix of 216 and 12 Squadron. Then I was uh, posted to strike command on the Buccaneer desk, uh, which I yeah, I, I, I can't say I didn't like it, but it wasn't what I joined for. 
of course. And, and I had a chance of leaving the Air Force at the age of 38 in January of 84, and that's when I elected to go to uh, the Amman Armed Forces as a brigade support officer in on one of their army regiments. And I did that for five and a half years. And was that your end of your career at that point, after the Oman tour? Well, Oman, I, I already left the Air Force. I joined the Sultan's Armed Forces. Mm -hmm. In fact, I remember vividly, I had to sign a piece of paper provided by the British government saying that I was absolutely nothing to do with them. Oh, okay. Which obviously makes sense in hindsight, but yeah. the, the reality was, I was thinking, well, the good thing about this, I don't have to do any of this reserve stuff. <laughs> <laughs> of course. That night, when I went in January of '84, when I went out to a man, I was absolutely nothing to do with the Royal Air Force or the British forces. Okay. I joined the Amani Armed Forces, wore his uniform, and goodness knows what. <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm just going to backtrack uh, just a bit here before we go into the personal questions because I just realised I missed out sure. something I want to ask. Uh, so, how did uh, training and operating with the U.S. Navy differ to the RAF and Royal Navy? Um, because of the technology in the A6, it was mainly night interdiction work, single aircraft. Yeah, they practice in formations, you know, large, you know, diving on targets with fours to sixteen formations of four or sixteen aircraft. But the mm -hmm. reality is. Their job, a sector job, was night singleton interdiction. Yeah. The Buccaneer did not have those avionics, so the Buccaneer was mainly formation work. Uh, it could operate at night with limited weapons, but the bottom, the reality was it was uh, daytime formation work firing different types of missiles mm -hmm. or pace bike depending on whether it was the overland roll or um, or the, you know, sea attack roll, shipping mm -hmm. attack roll. Okay. So, Andy, we're just going to get a bit more of a personal side to you. So, do you have any hobbies? Yes, I profess to be one of the worst golfers <laughs> in the world. <laughs> uh, and uh, which obviously is a very popular support here in sport here in Arizona yeah I fly fish I go to I'm travel and fly fish a bit trout and whatever um, but uh, the rest of course is uh, I you know you golf two or three times a week it's time is taken up but the rest is basically repairing the house <laughs> DIY <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> do you have a favorite tipple Yes, but I can't get at, at it very much unless I'm back in the UK. I am indeed a beer drinker. Um, but, and my favourite beer is Adnam's Ales in Suffolk. Ah, I've heard, I've heard know, of that, yes. Yeah, obviously uh, I got the taste when I was uh, at Honington. But yeah, I do, uh, on occasions when I go back to UK, I do... Uh, I sometimes actually get them to deliver a case of 12 beers at my folks' place. <laughs> Very <Right>. nice. 
<laughs> but yes, yes, I have a favourite tipple. It is beer, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, most people say wine or whatever. But no, I, I tend to be a beer drinker. I don't want to get you in trouble here, but Buccaneer or A6? Um, A6. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, quite simply, quite simply because... Um, the A6, in the A6, the A6 could not operate without the Bombardier Navigator. The Buccaneer, yeah. it, no, it couldn't fire its missiles and operate pace or anything mm-hmm. like that. No. But the, the A6 could do a manual bombing job without the Navigator in the back. Um, but without a doubt, the A6 could not operate without the Bombardier and mm-hmm. the, you know, it, everything that happened in the A6 revolved around what happened in the right seat. Yeah. So, is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown? Yes. One. F-15 Strike Eagle. Ah, okay. I wasn't expecting that, but okay. Uh, yes, I, uh... I know that avionics are pretty good. I've chatted to a few guys who flew them. They're all old and grey now, or old and white, <laughs> in my case. But um, uh, they, they did, it sounded like a heck of an aircraft. And, of course, telling you the capabilities of the, the bombing systems in the A6 in the late 70s, mm-hmm. where you just couldn't miss a target, can you imagine what those things can do today? Yeah, exactly, yeah. If you were that good back in the day, so God knows what technology is like these days. And finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? Um, not really, and to be quite honest, um, it's only when I'm really together with old uh, US Navy friends or <laughs> when I get an old buccaneer mate come and visit me or I visit them in the UK... That's the only time it really talk much about it, and it's really not so much about the aircraft, but it's remembering our friends. Yeah, of course. Of course, as I've already said, that the uh, certainly uh, the, the stories tend to get uh, more interesting as we age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Andy, it's been great uh, speaking to you, and thank you very much for talking with me. That's a pleasure, mate. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And don't forget, if you like what we do, please visit us at patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview. And also visit our website at aircrewinterview.tv. Thank you.